he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. Get me a gay, Mickey. Gotta get a gay. Hello and welcome to another episode of In the Details, a celebration of nuance where each week I queen out on all of the acting choices, micro moments, and magic and the minutiae that make a scene great. My name is, of course, Colin Drucker, and you already know what your name is because you're wearing that handy dandy name tag. And this week, this is a big week. I'm very excited about this week. I have a few reasons to be excited. One of the, um, one of the reasons not relevant to this episode is that I just bought an air fryer. And can I just, is it, can I just, can I take like two minutes? Can I talk to you about, not Squarespace, can I talk to you about my air fryer? Um, I, it's, it's one of these things. I bought it because let's just, let's just own up, right? Um, without going into details because it's gauche, even though that is the name of the podcast, wah, wah. Uh, I feel like with my new job, my my financial situation is finally stable again and very supportive of when I go on Amazon.com and um, amuse myself by buying things. Uh, we all do it. Everybody does it. And it's that thing when you go on Amazon where you, you're like, you know, I'm just, I, I could, yeah, I'm going to buy that. It's free shipping. I have Prime, you know, all that whole thing. Um, but then I buy one thing. and I'm like, well, if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want an air fryer. You know what I mean? And so that kind of led me down the path of like, What's the story with these air fryers? I'll, I'll save you. I'll save you the journey. I bought one. I think I, I think I paid like sixty five bucks. I don't think that that's unreasonable. Um, and there was enough empirical evidence, at least from what I had heard, you know, through Amazon.com's trusty reviewers. Um, I'm sure none of them were compensated. I'm sure none of them were sent one for free to leave a review, right? Um, but it seemed like okay, at the very least, if this thing can like do French fries, I think. I think it's going to pay for itself in like due time. And so I bought it. And the first thing I tested out was, of course, frozen French fries. No, and, and like, listen, like, let's, let's call things what they are, right? Like an air fryer is just a, like a convection oven. Like there's no real frying going on. I, I put these in the same way I put them in the regular oven, right? But I, you know, so I put them in the air fryer in the little basket and it's, you know, it's, it's definitely cooking for one, you know, it's, you can get a bigger one. I got a smaller one. I'm just really cooking for myself. Um, it's, it's cooking for one. In some ways, it's kind of like if you want to like make a whole meal with your air fryer, it's kind of like cooking for one. If you've got like a gastric sleeve, you know what I mean? Like it's a very small portion, but if you're making yourself just like a serving of French fries, it'll do just fine. And so I did, and I put it in for the recommended time. It was like 15 minutes at 400. Bada bing, bada boom, slide them in, turn them on, uh, walk away, set it and forget it, as, as one may w recommend. Ron Popiol, God rest his soul. Is he dead? I don't know. Oh, should look it up. I was a big fan of the Showtime Rotisserie Cooker infomercial when I was a kid. Not the Rotisserie Cooker itself. Never tried it. Love the infomercial. Um, and so... Uh, the French fries, let's just cut to the chase. These French fries were so effing good. They were so good. Like, I was like, done, done, $65. I would pay $65 to have these fries at home in 15 minutes. It, it was great. And so I've since tested it with more French fries. Um, I've reheated uh, some leftover Amy's pizza, and it turned out really well. 
Um, what I think there was something else. I think I'm going to put some things in it today. Uh, when I'm done recording, I'm going to just put things in my air fryer all afternoon. And that sounds like a euphemism, but I really just mean I'm going to put stuff in my air fryer. Um, so that's been that's been exciting. That's been probably some of the biggest news of the month. But the other exciting news that has a little bit more to do with this episode is that today we are starting part one of a three-part series that I like to call, or that I did call because I named it, I'm calling it right now, Cherishing Valerie. And I'm just going to tell you up front, the soundtrack is all songs called Valerie. And I, I was like, oh my God, like there's so many songs called Valerie that are so fitting for these three parts. So know that going in, that uh, that's why the music choices are what they are. Thank you, Steve Winwood and friends. Um, I, so of course, Cherishing Valerie is of course about Valerie Cherish. Uh, the, the icon and legend of uh, the cult favorite, The Comeback. She's also the first voice you hear when this podcast starts, before I even start. Um, she needs to know she's being heard. She is heard first. That is Valerie Cherish. That is Lisa Kudrow. That is probably one of my favorite TV shows. Definitely one of my favorite characters. I, I could go on infinitely about who I think Valerie Cherish is in and all of the things that I think she's doing in every moment of the comeback. And I will, I will try to curate as best I can in these three parts, because really what I want to focus on is who she is. There's so much to talk about. There's so many relationships. There's so many micro moments. There's so many nuances. Oh my freaking God, there's so many nuances. And, and I, I have to kind of limit my scope or else, you know, the apple cart's just going to tumble all over the place. I don't think that's the, I don't, there's an apple cart reference and that's not how you use it, but it's too late, baby. So here's the thing to know going in. We are talking about who is Valerie Cherish. There is who she is as an actress. There's who she is as someone in Hollywood. There is Valerie the wife. There's Valerie the stepmom. There's Valerie the, um, the friend. And then there's Val, you know, then there's who, uh, who she was before all this started who she was, who she is when the cameras aren't on, you know? There's so many different versions of her. There's, and then there's the characters that she plays. You know, there's Aunt Sassy, and then there's Mallory Church in season two. And I, it pains me to say this, but for the sake of focusing, we're just going to be talking about season one. Not that I don't love season one, but season two is a profound accomplishment. And I, I, I say that with no hyperbole. It really is. It is so incredible. And... It's, it, spoiler, I'll talk about it eventually. I just, you know, got to focus things, right? But the journey that we see in, in season one versus season two is very different. There's definitely connections and reflections, and there's things that are versions of themselves, and that's certainly a running theme in season two. But I think there is a complete journey in season one. I think that there is... Um, an unraveling and a revealing of who Valerie is in 2005, right? And she's a very different woman in 2015 when we see her again in season two. Especially this week, we're going to focus on the Valerie we meet at the beginning and who she was before the comeback. And then there's who we start to see come out, um, who she wants us to see, and then who kind of 
slips out when she's not paying attention. So this week we're going to focus on who Valerie Cherish was in her heyday. And there's a lot about the comeback and this idea of a heyday. And especially the heyday being like the 90s. And I think for me, you know, I'm 33. And so the 90s have this very specific feeling. The context of the 90s is very different for me than it would be for someone 10 years younger than me or 10 years older um, in terms of where I was in my life. You know, I was, I was all my formative years, you know, I was five in 1990 and I was um, turning 15 at the, you know, in two, beginning of 2000. So I went, you know, I went through a whole bunch of weird years in the 90s and um, was trying to figure out what was what the world was and who I was in the world at that time. And so um, I I think when I look back on that, I think that I was looking at a lot of a lot of pop culture and a lot of celebrities and I would I would watch a lot of like e news, you know what I mean? Um, and and kind of sink into that world because I was just this like young gay boy archiving, um, just just taking in references and ideas and names and just cataloging them, you know? And so when I think about Valerie Cherish being in that world, that idea of like the 90s in Hollywood, in LA, and this very kind of produced pre-social media version of celebrity, it's, um, it's like, I get it. I get what she's yearning for. And I, I developed a long time ago a desire for the time that she wants to go back to. And so even Valerie the actress, who's kind of like Valerie at her worst, um, I, I connect with her because I get, I get what she is nostalgic for. I get the era that she idolizes and that she idealizes um, because I do the same thing. So that being said, let's get into this. Let's dive into the details as one does on this podcast. And let's get into Cherishing Valerie, part one, TV's It Girl. character your favorite actress on a talk show it was that person I did her at the groundlings so, wow, so it all came full circle yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't think of anything new um, <laughs> yeah I just thought that would be perfect because it's an actress and she's signed up for it so you don't have to feel too bad for her but as it turned out I think Michael was concerned that okay we don't want to hate her too much though so you know we did pile on. It was brutal. That first and second episode, I only re they, I laughed out loud, you know, when I watched them right after we did them. I was like, this is hilarious. I see my brother, my father, like, mm-hmm. Like, why are you laughing? It's so funny. My brother's like, she's going to self-destruct. What's going to happen to her? This is a little, oh, it's very good. It's really powerful. There's a lot of impact. What's going to happen? I'm really worried about her, though. It's like, no, she's an idiot. Um, <laughs> and it was well done. She signed up for it. This is like the life preserver that's meant to save Valerie from drowning in our pity. She has co-signed the humiliation, the degradation, the extensive phoniness required of a talk show segment or a bad sitcom or even a reality TV show. It is a circus of exploitation, and she has accepted the uncertainty between the trapezes as long as it means that there's people in the audience to clap. 
Of course, Valerie isn't a graceful acrobat. She's a clown who thinks she's doing Cirque du Soleil. This delusion preserves her from the profound disappointment flickering in the corner that says, you peaked 13 years ago. I'm it was it. She is essentially ascending into a valley, which makes no sense, of course, but doing a reality show called The Comeback with any sense of dignity makes no sense. Trying to be an equal or even some kind of mentor to an up-and-comer like Juna Milken makes no sense. Expecting stardom from a black hole of potential obscurity makes no sense. But that's the nature of celebrity. All of it is a delusion we buy into, either as stars or fans. It actually means nothing. But when you've bet the whole house on nothing, you need to act like it's a winning hand every time. You need to use those acting skills and bluff until you yourself have forgotten the truth. The most fascinating part of Valerie's delusion is that at one point it was a reality. Valerie's fame isn't some conspiracy theory that no one can prove. She has a right to think people like her. She won a People's Choice Award in 1991, for God's sake. She was on the cover of TV Guide, and they called her TV's It Girl. She did a Ladies Home Journal cover story, probably an interview with McCall's, maybe even something in Red Book. Perhaps she was mentioned on The Hit List or The Monitor in the early days of Entertainment Weekly to say nothing of the gossip rags. We see this experience in Hyperdrive today. Everyone's 15 minutes of fame are 15 white-hot seconds of notoriety. You're a viral video star with millions and millions of views on a Tuesday, and by Sunday you haven't so much as been eclipsed as exhausted. The appetite for excitement and entertainment is satiated, and then, as appetites are wont to do, they doggedly return for something new. In, in this, really, the age of content, you're suddenly just breakfast when everybody's already thinking about dinner. I'm It ran for 97 episodes, just short of 100, which is either just the math of four seasons of television or another crack in Valerie's stardom. She never got the 100-episode celebration. The cake, the candles, the photo ops, the recognition, the sense of inclusion that comes with success. With being able to say that you're one of the ones who made it. The show premiered in 1989, which was a year full of hits and flops. For every Family Matters or Coach, there was an Angelian or a Living Dolls, barely squeezing out a baker's dozen episodes before getting pulled from the lineup. And then there were mega-hits like The Simpsons and Seinfeld that premiered in 1989 and redefined television in the 90s and beyond. I'm It in my mind, was more like a Suddenly Susan or a Caroline in the City. Shows that also just missed 100 episodes, but I think are looked back fondly, if not a little vaguely, as hieroglyphics on the cave walls of 90s culture. When I think of Suddenly Susan, I think of what director James Burroughs, playing essentially himself as Jimmy, tells Valerie on episode one. You took a small role and hit it out of the park. Valerie, the sitcom star, feels to me like Brooke Shields' Susan, but in the role of Kathy Griffin's Vicky, the scene-stealing redhead. 
Kathy Griffin, of course, is no Valerie Cherish. I think I think she has a, like a self-awareness and a sense of humor that are well calibrated to navigate the swamps of Hollywood. And um, it takes Valerie a long time to develop either of those. When I think of Valerie Cherish as a TV actress, I also think of Shelley Long in the short-lived sitcom Good Advice. Shelley Long, of course, is amazing and has had great success in TV and film. Uh, she was in well over 100 episodes of Cheers. She was in starring roles in True Beverly Hills, Outrageous Fortune, The Money Pit. And of course, I mean, just doing pitch-perfect satirical work as Carol Brady in the Brady Bunch movies. Good Advice was not one of her more successful ventures. I think uh, over two seasons, they eked out 19 episodes. As I was doing my research, because I was just kind of getting, just like watching the clip and seeing the way that her character, Susan DeRuza, who uh, she plays a marriage counselor who's sharing an office with a divorce attorney played by Treat Williams. Uh, there was a way that she spoke and a way that she acted that just it was like, oh, this is Pitch Perfect Valerie. So let's just play a clip. This is from an episode from, this is uh, season two, episode eight. Um, let's just play a quick clip here uh, to get a sense of uh, what, what tone she's hitting. You know what I mean? I mean, you can practically see how Valerie would be doing that line. You could see her practicing that all night, um, which is, uh, let's get to that in a second. The, the sort of fun synchronicity here as I was doing my research is that this episode, uh, not only is there a lot of uh, funny little coincidences in the storyline, but the director of the episode is none other than Michael Patrick King, who is, of course, the director and co-creator of The Comeback. And so what happens in this episode is apparently there's some new movie being produced called Psychopath, uh, which is supposed to be a kind of uh, therapy thriller, I guess. Basically, I think it's probably supposed to be kind of like a knockoff of like basic instinct. Um, and so it's totally inflated and totally exploitive. And Susan goes on this rant about uh, Hollywood and about the stories that they tell and the truths that they don't show. So Susan eventually agrees to meet with the director and the lead actress of the movie, Meg Porter. And she, of course, lists out all issues with the script and how unrealistic it is. And Meg kind of convinces her, like, hey, we're going to do this movie anyway. Uh, maybe you can, you and I could work together and we, could, we can tell a story with dignity. We can show reality for what it is. So this is starting to sound a little familiar, right? Uh, so anyway, so eventually they meet the next day and Meg is going to kind of shadow Susan and just kind of get a glimpse of what it's really like to be a therapist. And there's this one moment where Susan answers the phone and, and the nuance of how she does it is, is just what Meg is looking for. And what I love about this scene is that it is, um, I, I don't know if there's a coincidence that Michael Patrick King is involved with both projects because 
the scene that's about to happen is so reminiscent of the I don't want to see that rehearsal scene, which if for some reason you don't know, maybe it's worth hearing side by side. All right, so they're all making out in the condo. I come home, see it, and I say, note to self, after a long day at work, I don't want to see that. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, the way you do it, it's funny. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Note to self, after a long day at work, I don't want to see that. Note to self, after a long day at work, I don't want to see that. Note to self, after a long day at work, I don't want to see that. Note to self, after a long day at work, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that. Note to self. After a long day at work, I don't want to see that. Don't want to see that. Note to self, after a long day at work, I don't want to see that. Note to self, after a long day at work, I don't want to see that. Note to self, after a long day at work, I don't want to see that. Okay, and now here is the scene from Good Advice with Susan and Meg in her office. She eventually, in a in a turn of events that is so season two of the comeback, um, she ends up answering the phone at one point later on, and Meg realizes, hey, you're so good at that. I think you could do that in the movie. There's a small role as a receptionist. She has one line. Why don't you do it? And so much like in season two, uh, Susan becomes involved in something that she objects to and she then is a part of it and then they are setting everything up to film the scene and Meg her character walks in in a in a skimpy skirt with a really low cut top and all of the efforts at bringing dignity and truth and reality to the script were totally scrapped and Susan just can't she's done she's like oh I can't do this I can't be a part of it
I honestly don't know what to make of all these connections. I did not expect this when I was doing my research. I don't even know why I found good advice. It's like a, it, it's an obscure canceled sitcom from 1993. But I think uh, that's the magic of YouTube. And I then it just kind of led me down this path to find this episode directed by the co-creator of The Comeback, featuring an actress who's feeling very Valerie Cherish, telling a story that they're kind of telling on The Comeback as well. I, I don't think any of this is deliberate. I think this is just kind of the magic that comes out of like diving into the details of, of mining the nuances as you find these little connections. This happened on episode two, the Beatrice Strait episode. I'm determined to mention Beatrice Strait on every episode of In the Details. It's just, uh, just one of its own special little nuances. But that was the same thing where I talked about her scene in Network and then found this random uh, TV thriller episode that she did in the 1950s that had a very similar moment. Uh, so yeah, I like to think of that as the universe being like, hey, I'm listening to your podcast. I'm into it. I left you a five-star review. Thanks, universe. The first episode of season one of The Comeback gives some interesting real-life context by featuring Kim Fields and Mary Lou Henner as Val's competition for Room and Board and The Comeback. Mary Lou Henner had co-starred in a Burt Reynolds sitcom vehicle called Evening Shade from 1990 to 1994, 98 episodes to be exact. And yes, I know about Taxi, but we're talking late 80s, early 90s specifically right now. Uh, Kim Fields, first known uh, for playing Tootie in The Facts of Life, uh, then went on to star in Living Single from 1993 to 1998, appearing in 118 episodes and earning an Image Awards nomination in 1996 for Outstanding Lead Actress. However, when I, when I think of Valerie's contemporaries uh, during her peak, I think of someone like Marky Post on Night Court and the also-canceled Hearts of Fire, uh, Vicki Lewis on News Radio, or Crystal Bernard on Wings. Really, just that collection of first names, Valerie, Vicky, Marky, Crystal. It, just, it takes me to an early 90s flashbolt memory that doesn't even exist, but it feels bright and enthusiastic. A, a sort of good old day. A heyday, right? I think there's no way, though, that we can look back on a specific period of time and say that collectively was a heyday. Because I think for some people, yeah, it is their heyday, but for plenty of other people, it's their twilight. And for lots of other people, it's, it's just when everything is beginning. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, in, in the 90s, that's kind of when my life was just starting to take form. In the world of Valerie Cherish, 1992 was the year I Met was canceled. After four seasons and 97 episodes, Valerie Cherish, last year's People's Choice Award winner, had gone from starring in a hit sitcom, well, until season four, when they had hired a chimp to work at the law firm, to what? She was on Leno that year, his first year, she reminds us, so it was a really important show for him, right? The other guest was clearly some Jack Hanna type whose monkey eventually pooped on her head. Real watershed moment. Classic. Let's assume she was on after season four of I'm It Wrapped and before they found out if season five was even getting picked up. But like, 
knowing that it wasn't likely and thinking, or at least Valerie thinking, it was because the show got too edgy. It flew too close to the sun with a Rodney King joke. It was very possible at that moment that a lot of people just did not like I'm It anymore. And by proxy, didn't like Valerie Cherish either, and were potentially questioning their choice in 1991 for Outstanding Actress in a Comedy. I imagine even then Valerie covering up her uncertainty, her trenchant fear of rejection with a, with a squinty smile, an exaggerated laugh, and about 60% of the neurosis we witnessed 13 years later. I think the desperation coursing below the surface really developed and inflamed in the ensuing years. I imagine the TV movies she did, the, uh, the Hallmark movie about the woman with the migraines, uh, perhaps a variety of made-for-TV films about women in gentle but meaningful trouble. I may be wrong about this, but outside of I'm It, we never learn of any other comedic opportunities for Valerie until Room and Board. So was it a deliberate choice, perhaps at first? Was she just trying to be taken seriously? Because isn't she always just trying to be taken seriously? To be heard? And I need to know that I'm being heard. Am I being heard? We know that Valerie met Mark after I'm It, and that the comeback and room and board are the first things she's actually worked on since they've met. So maybe the TV movies were few and far between for Valerie, and then not at all. I can imagine Valerie waving a dismissive hand at it all, you know, scrunching up her nose and saying, oh, no, that's all right, that's all right. I've got my beautiful life with Mark, so yeah, yeah. You know, justifying the end of her career with the start of her marriage. Which is not a bad marriage. It's certainly not a perfect one, but, like, what is a perfect marriage? Maybe the one she's trying to fabricate for her show? We're going to talk more about Mark later, though. Uh, I think that Mark is... I think he's kind of the Valerie Whisperer at moments. You know, there's times when he can, especially in season one, really cut through the bullshit and get eye-to-eye with Valerie. And he can see her. And that's all she really wants, right? Like, she says she needs to be heard, but really she's just desperate to be seen, you know, recognized, appreciated, not for anything that she's done in that moment, but just for who she is. The knot in the hair with Valerie, of course, is that she's dancing as fast as she can to show people a produced, a self-produced version of herself and say, here, love this. Valerie is, at first, insufferable. Whenever I'm trying to sell the comeback to someone who hasn't seen it but is willing to give it a shot, I have to warn them right away that, at least for the first two episodes, she is... uh, Off-putting is a word. That's a word for it. It really isn't... uh, I, I don't think it's really until repeated viewings, and every time I catch something new, that you become fluent in Valerie. I think in some ways the, the first season is a totally different show once you've watched the second season. This is, of course, me actively trying to not just queen out on the last episode of season two. 
I am actively trying. I just want to talk about it right now. I could do a minute-by-minute a minute breakdown of the last, like, 10 minutes of that episode, and I would probably cry through the entire thing. I, I'm stopping. I'm stopping because I just want to talk about it. I want to talk about that version of Valerie, um, but I also want to get there um, because I think the Val we see at the end of season two is well-earned. I think that she peeks out here and there, um, and definitely more so in the second season. Uh, but really, at the top of season one, uh, she is largely just insufferable. Uh, I say that, of course, with love. You know, um, I don't. This is not. This is not Ricky Gervais in The Office, or even Steve Carell in the first season of the U.S. version. Uh, the anchor to Valerie is that she isn't mean spirited. Lisa Kudrow talks about this in an amazing interview she and Michael Patrick King did at the Writers Guild Foundation called Anatomy of a Script, which honestly could have gone on for hours. Oh, and they're interviewed by Robin Schiff, uh, who you may or may not know wrote and produced Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, and Winnie Holzman, who wrote and produced My So-Called Life. So, uh, are you sold, right? Like, what more do you need? Anyway, they also all mention at some point early on how brutal the first few episodes of season one are. And particularly, they all use that word, brutal, which I love. I, I, think, I think that was the intended effect in a way, to be brutally honest. Um, that being said, I think in, in Lisa Kudrow and Michael Patrick King's eyes, it was also incredibly funny. The, the trick with it getting less brutal, I believe, is that by episode whatever, you started to find Valerie as funny, as we did. And by that, I mean you realize that she wasn't going to die. <laughs> and once you realize that she was going to keep going, which is the whole reason we thought she was funny from the beginning, because we know nothing would kill her. But at first, everybody was terrified she would die. And that Pauly G would destroy not only her, but everybody watching the show at home. They were ter But we always thought she was funny, so for us it was a... A, quite a surprise that people were so run over by the first couple of episodes, like they couldn't handle it. Because you know, we thought brutal the first couple. I watched it recently, and they were definitely brutal. I think this really speaks to the rewatchability of the comeback. Knowing it won't kill her is important. Knowing that she will survive this, that, th that, that these setbacks and missteps won't leave her stranded and poor and alone. Because, you know, what happens if Room and Board gets canceled and the comeback veers into a subsequent ditch? Really nothing. She goes home to her beautiful house with her loving husband and her comfortable life, and she, well, you know, she, she faces the black hole of obscurity of just being another person on this planet living out a storyline who at one point, at some drop in the bucket of time, was a nuance in a lot of other people's long and varied lives. She was at one point a character in other people's stories. She once won a People's Choice Award, the most important award of all because it's from the people. She was once it. She was TV's it girl. We'll talk later about why this was so important to Valerie, why the drug of fame was so intoxicating. But like any other drug, fame purports to fill the emptiness. 
That's another important nuance they talk about in the Writers Guild interview. Valerie will do anything they ask of her to get her fix of that spotlight. But unlike an actual substance, she's only being intoxicated by delusion. Fame certainly exists, but I think one's understanding of their own fame is limited and subjective. I think of when Valerie is called out by Donna in the Palm Springs episode, which is a pivotal turning point in the season. The the Palm Springs episode in season one of the comeback is like what Snatch Game is to any season of Drag Race. It's fine. It really is. Yeah. You can't keep negative feelings bottled up. You'll get sick. Words to live by. Thank you. Yeah. Valerie. We don't know each other very well, but can I say something? Sure. You have to stop worrying so much about what people think. Okay. Like like that. You keep looking at the camera trying to control how this is all coming across. Oh, I'm not, no, I'm not trying to control. You can't control life, Val. Hell, you can't even control what chair you get by the pool. Who cares what people think? You gotta love yourself. Warts and all. There's this amazing flash of panic in Valerie's eyes. That that moment when you know a nerve was hit just square on the head. It's like a DMT trip into cosmic reality for her. And it's amazing to watch. And I don't think anyone has ever said that to Valerie before. To stop caring about what other people think. If anything, I think she's been told the opposite, you know, by agents and fellow actors and producers and critics and maybe even her parents who are a fascinating mystery and would explain so much, but we get no information on them. Valerie wants us to think of her as as the woman on the cover of Ladies Home Journal, as the woman in her Val vlogs, which like are truly some of her best acting, by the way. I think of Joan Crawford talking to the press in Mommy Dearest, you know, putting on the spectacle of Christina's birthday, the impassioned gratitude for her own version of the People's Choice Award, her Oscar for Mildred Pierce, and of course, her ill-fated interview with Barbara years later. Joan! Barbara, please! Please, Barbara! Leave us alone, Barbara. If you need anything, ask Carol Ann. What if that was an aging Valerie strangling Francesco while that dusty TV critic Mary Murphy clutched her reading glasses in horror and then and then and then Esperanza has to pry Valerie off of her. It's stepmommy dearest, you know? Um, it's not impossible to imagine. It's the same desperation, the same addiction. But here's the important part. I want Valerie to succeed. I want room and board to get picked up. 
I want her to get laughs during the taping. I want people to recognize her on the street. It's, it's similar to watching any other reality show, even the most outrageous ones. I, I don't want to see people eating bugs for cash on Fear Factor. I, in fact, do not need to see that. But once I'm watching some dental assistant from Delaware devouring a bowl of beetles like her life depends on it, I want this all to be for something. If you're going to come all this way and endure the humiliation of being cast as Aunt Sassy because at 39, that's how the industry sees you, and if you're going to sign up for a reality show called The Comeback and implicitly agree that your career had indeed ended already, your time was up, and this all now is a desperate attempt at resuscitation, if you're going to do all that, then you might as well get picked up, right? The end of the first episode perfectly captures this. Valerie has been degraded to play Aunt Sassy, not one of a quartet of sexy singles a la Sex and the City. And more importantly, she's been knocked down a peg by Jimmy after that excruciating give her another take moment, which is probably Valerie the actress at her worst. I don't need to see that! You know what? I got it, darling. Let's move on. Please, please, give me another take. Please, please, give me another take. Give me another take. Give her another take. Give her another take. Jimmy is probably the true Valerie Whisperer here, at least professionally. He feels like a much-needed father figure in Valerie's life, and he talks to her in a way that she desperately needs. That wasn't good what you did out there with the audience. Jimmy, I am so sorry, okay? I, I'm, I was not trying to get in your way, you know? You're the hit maker. I wouldn't, you know. You know, you know you're not getting in my way. You're getting in your way. You've got to trust me. Jimmy, I trust you. I trust you. It's just, look, and I'm it. You know what? I hope... I hope this is better than I'm in because I'd like it to get picked up. Well, now, ran for four years, you know, so... You're, you're, you're not hearing what I'm saying. I'm trying to help you here. Do you understand? Yes, yes. But all I'm saying is that, look, I'm always looser on the second, third take. You know, they gave me lots of takes on it. Well, you know what? You're not it anymore. You took a small part. You hit it out of the park. You can't ask for better than that. Have a great couple of weeks. Okay. I'll see if it gets picked up. So you pair this reality check with the uncertainty of the show being picked up and then getting into a car accident and then the act one gun of the leak in the powder room on the other side of her it wall becoming an act three disaster. Valerie is having a dogville kind of day. Her it wall, this representation of her career, has been reduced to a mess of warped memories and crumbling sheetrock. 
This couldn't be a more striking manifestation of what is happening in her life. This all feels like an omen, a hint. It was the parable of what she wasn't looking at and how it can turn to bigger damage in her home life. That was what we were trying to do. And it's just a realistically believable thing, like a real person has a hole in the wall. It's so real. And then she comes home, and it was more damage than she thought because she ignored it. But and it'll hit you where it really hurts because you're not even going to notice the wall, but it's that Deleno. Like those, your our dream was deconstructed. All your your pride and joy gone. And that's when her phone rings, and she finds out they've been picked up. She is standing there in the rubble of her career and her home, and here is a lifeline. She finished the bowl of beetles. She completed her first humiliating set of challenges, and her reward is room and board is getting picked up. We see it like the, the, the drug as it hits her bloodstream and she melts into that endorphin rush. At the end of the first episode, she's going to get everything she wants. Right. Even though she knows better, getting it will then give her amnesia. And she'll right. just go right back. It's Does like getting happen? a hit of heroin. Or yeah. A- we see when the high hits, the way everything slows down and she mutters, well, all right. All right. The the fix has hooked her back into place just as she was about to completely unravel. And like any other reality show, I'm on the edge of my seat to find out what she'll be put through next, how she'll endure it, and what she'll win if she does. And that, my friends, is part one of Cherishing Valerie. I'd love to hear your thoughts so far. Of course, we have parts two and three to come. But if you feel like sharing, and I welcome you to do so, you could drop me an email at inthedetailspod at gmail.com. Or you could tweet at me at Colin Drucker. Or you could head over to iTunes and you could leave me a review and a positive rating, you know thinking you know magically here and uh let the rest of the world know that this is a celebration of nuance worth attending um anyway i think that's all i've got to say for now so uh till then thank you so much for showing up for this week's episode of in the details and queening out with me on valerie cherish and i look forward to chatting with you again next week for more val more the comeback and more importantly more nuance thanks everyone bye